0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you, or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
0: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God, Good morning, City on a Hill. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good to see you. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. Get the joy of unpacking that text for you this morning. Uh, Thanks so much to everyone, I should say, for journeying with us in this short-term mission trip out to Clayton uh, in the the temporary venue that we are having. Uh, Thanks so much. You've been so good and patient in bearing the burden of a new venue. And let me just reiterate what Pat said. Let me remind the parents again. Your kids are a blessing. And the murmur from them, the noise from them, it's just a blessed family moment. And so, stress less, we are with you. It's a family moment together today. And so, we're going to pick up uh, from where we left off last week, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Perfect example 2 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, It's a weighty text. It's a a deep text, and so there's a lot to cover. And so we won't be able to get into every single verse, but we'll see the, the big ideas throughout it. And to get to that, let me start by telling you about my blessed 2002 Toyota Corolla. You know, my 2002 Toyota Corolla is perhaps my perfect car, and this year it celebrates its 21st birthday. Uh, When our family hit that point of of moving from being able to get away with one car to having to bring in a second car, I was looking for the cheapest, the most efficient, uh, and yet the most reliable car that I could find. And thank you, Facebook Marketplace, there was a Toyota Corolla there waiting for me. Uh, And so this car, it is small and it's a manual, and so it feels like you're driving a go-kart, Uh, It can perfectly fit the golf clubs in the boot. And in the almost four years I've had it, thanks to the used car market, it is actually worth more now than it was when I bought it. And so it is the the perfect situation that I've got with this car. But I bring that up because I want you to know that I know almost nothing about how, how cars run. Uh, I never had that, the moment of learning mechanical engineering from my dad because I think he knows even less about how cars run than I do. And so I have, I have no idea whether the car's in good shape or not in good shape other than knowing does it start and does it run. And so if the car has started and it can move, I'm winning. It, 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 this car's in great shape. But if it doesn't start and doesn't move, I know something is wrong. And so this is another great perk with my 2002 Toyota Corolla because it tells me When it needs a service. It tells me when something's going wrong, and it tells me because it just starts to shake. And so I know that when I've stopped at a red light, if my driver's side chair turns into a massage chair, I know that it is time to send it in to the mechanic. It is perfect. And in approaching our text today, I tell you that because it, it occurred to me that often we treat the Christian life and what we're doing here today and every Sunday at church, what church life is like, we actually think about it or don't think about it in the same way as me and mechanical engineering. A lot of us don't think about the mechanics of church or the Christian life. We, we turn up and church happens and then we turn up the next Sunday and church happens again and so on and so forth. And we never really stop to notice the engineering of the thing or, or why we do what we do when we're together, why the Christian life is what it is. And Perhaps like Maya we we only really notice the engineering and look under the hood when things start to go wrong. Maybe there's division in the church or moral failure or there's some dodgy teaching. But outside of that, we never quite stop to think about why is it that we do what we're doing. Now in the first two weeks of our series, and 2 Corinthians is going to continue in this vein, Paul has been at pains to try to show the church why he is the way he is. Why he leads the way he leads. And today, particularly, why he ministers the way he ministers. Because in his day, Paul was feeling the pressure of some celebrity pastors, celebrity preachers in his own day. And they were coming across uh, the church in Corinth there and persuading them to believe that the genuine works of God in the world would come with flash. They'd come with, with gloss. They were, they were very impressive. And so therefore, the genuine ministers, the genuine leaders for God would always look polished and always be very impressive. And yet here was Paul, who was very short, he was very plain-spoken, and he suffered a lot. He was persecuted a lot. And so to bring the church back to the heart of the gospel, back to what is essential, Paul has to defend himself. And today, he does it in this text, in a sense, by opening up the glove box and taking out the car manual for New Testament Christianity. To tell the church and set the expectations for what it is all about. So today he's going to pop the hood to show the church the engineering behind why he ministers and leads the way that he does. Why the Christian life is the way that it is. What is it that actually God uses to change people? How is it that God is actually at work in the world, in our day and in our time today? And therefore... Who should we be as Christian people? What should our focus and priority be given that engineering? So we're in a lecture theatre. I know I think this is the, the, the medical wing of Monash. Today it's the engineering wing for our sake. If we are all about worshipping the God of the Bible, why don't we pay much attention to doing so in the ways set out in the Old Testament? If we're all about drawing people to Jesus, why don't we shape our message to be as palatable uh, as possible so that we gather a bigger crowd as we can? If we want to make church services and Christianity attractive, why why don't we have fireworks every Sunday? Why don't we give away Toyota Corollas every Sunday? Why not do whatever we can to make it as attractive as possible? Why did I study theology and not comedy? We need to think about why we do what we do. And it's what Paul says here, and to flag where we're going, Paul's argument essentially is that he has been captured by Christ and therefore his ministry is credible in Christ. And this is all because people are changed by Christ. So that's the way he is and that's the way we should be. Let's see him unpack that here. So come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll start in, in verse 14 where... Uh, Paul says that he has been captured by Christ. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those whom are being saved and among those whom are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And some of you know that late last year, uh, my family and I, we had an incredible AFL Grand Final weekend experience, and we had that because our son Axel was one of the AFL Aus Kickers of the week last year, and so he had to be at the Grand Final to give a medal to one of the winning Geelong players. That was awesome. And, and we thought, hey, this is like the high point of, of, of life. And it turns out it, for, for Axel, it's just become a habit. Because he clocked Ozkick last year, and so he wasn't going to sign up for Ozkick again this year. This year he wanted to play soccer. But before even playing a game of soccer, his soccer club was selected, along with a few others, to come along to the Socceroos versus Ecuador game and do a lap of honour around the, the Marvel Stadium before the game. Uh, and so we got to go on the field at, at Marvel Stadium, and having found this out, his first question was hey, does this mean I'm going to be famous again? Uh, And so all the kids did a lap of honour and the crowds there coming into the game, they're high-fiving the kids as they go through, Uh, everyone's cheering them on and celebrating them and clapping. And in a sense, it it was a modern-day triumphal procession which Paul brings up here. Now, they were a little bit different back in, in ancient Rome. Uh, these processions happened after a military victory where the winning general would come back into the city and he'd be flanked by his fellow soldiers who won, but also flanked by the spoils of his victory, particularly those people he had beaten and captured and now, for, now were essentially being, being walked through the streets to their shame because they had lost and were about to be executed. Now, Paul inserts himself into that kind of imagery. But he doesn't insert himself into the chariot, into the the winning side of the equation. He's not in this procession as a winner being paraded before the world, as, as victorious. No, Paul's here saying that he's been captured by Jesus And so how he sees his life and how he sees his ministry from this point on is that he's on public display. He's been paraded around the world in in this part of the world, at this part of the the time of the world, as someone conquered, someone defeated, someone captured by Christ. And so here's the big idea that runs completely counter to the celebrity preachers of his day and maybe our own, that you you can die to yourself now and live forever or you can live for yourself now and die forever. And so like Paul, Christians, we we, we don't walk with a strut. No, we walk with humility because we're children being led by the hand of the King who has captured us, who has saved us. Our life is not our own. And so to the church, he's telling them, hey, this is why my ministry looks lowly. This is why we look weak. We've been captured. And so he takes this seriously and as a servant, he knows he hasn't earned anything. He hasn't kind of worked up the ranks to be promoted into the position of an apostle as he is now. No, he's simply been captured. He's simply been won by Jesus. Now, during these laps of honour, the the city would be kind of flocked by or or set up, decorated with with garlands and with, with wreaths, often made by roses, and so if people stopped to smell the roses, there'd be, there'd be a fragrance all over the place during these triumphal processions. And so that's why Paul brings up this idea of the, the fragrance. He's saying that there's the smell and the aroma of these roses during the triumphal processions, well, to the people who were, were there to celebrate, the people who were there to win, to them, this is like, oh, that's the sweet smell of victory. And yet to those people who were captured, to those people who were being walked through the streets to their execution, That was their final smell before death. And so Paul says that just like that, his life and his ministry, that the gospel emanates from him, that he's been so captured by Jesus that outflowing through his words, through his witness, some people come alongside him to celebrate what they see in him. Some people see Jesus in his life. And yet to other people who haven't been captured by Jesus, it reeks of death. Now, every so often there's a uh, new craze that overwhelms all our social media channels and you might be able to cast your mind back to another generation back in 2015. Does anyone remember the dress? Now, this was a a photo that went around that was, I think, taken innocuously. Here is the dress. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of a pop quiz right now about about who sees what in this dress. I don't know if this will work because the lighting's the same for all of us, but apparently, uh, based on how our senses interpret imagery and lighting. We see different things here. Some people see a white and gold dress. Does anyone see a white and gold dress when they look at that picture? There's a few hands going up. Others of us might see a a black and blue dress. Does anyone see a black and blue dress? That's what I'm seeing right now. I see a black and a blue dress. Now, I looked at this on Thursday to find out, well, what is it it that I see? And I started to see one, and then it slowly changed to the other. Like I said, we see it differently because of of light and interpretation. And uh, I bring that up, not to distract you, but to show you that actually Paul is bringing up a, a meta idea here, and that is that your soul has a sense, that our spirits have a sense. Your heart has a sense. And so Jesus is a similar test to the dress, and yet Jesus is a far weightier test. What we smell, what we see, how we react when we look to Jesus, well, it says everything about us. It's the litmus test for where we're going to be forever. How the message of the gospel smells to you, and for clarity, the message of the gospel being that God, out of his great love for his creation, for People like you and people like me responded to our sin, our rejection, our ignoring of him and going our own way. He's responded to us by coming in the flesh in Jesus. And Jesus has lived a perfect life where we've failed. Jesus has died a gruesome, sacrificial death in our place for us that we should have died. And Jesus has risen again in victory, bursting out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And that all of us now have the opportunity to be reconciled with him by faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. How your soul responds to that message, what that message smells like to you, is the most fundamental thing about you. That is the most essential, most important thing about all of us. And it's this reality that shaped who Paul was. His life isn't about personal triumph, it isn't about his impressiveness or looking like he has it all together. No, life is about surrendering ourselves to Jesus, giving all of our lives to Him. And so contrary to what this church was being told, living that way is how we truly point people to Jesus. They were being told... Hey, you need to be impressive. Hey, you need to, you need to get side along with those leaders who, who make you, you feel good, who, those ones who look like they have it all together. They, they speak really fluently and impressively and charismatically. Paul's saying, no, my weakness, the fact that I've been captured, that I'm surrendered to actually showing the weakness off is how God is primarily at work in the world. That's how people see Jesus, as we suffer like him. And it's a weighty and a heavy calling. And so rightly, Paul says this rhetorical question, who is sufficient for these things? And he goes on, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so Paul doesn't want to confuse, he doesn't want to conflate, he doesn't want to complicate the issue. The way he goes about talking is very to the point and, and simple and plain because he just wants people to hear the content. He wants people to see Jesus and hear about who he is. And so Paul's concern is just to speak authentically and to live the truth. His ministry is all about putting forth the reality that Jesus is the issue. And that's true for you and for me, for all of us. Jesus makes it make or break. Jesus is the issue. How we respond to Jesus is the most important thing about us. And so that's the challenge for us as we read these first few verses. How have we responded to Jesus? What do we sense when we look to Jesus? What do we feel when we think about the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's done? And then, are we living? Are we speaking? Are we leading? Are we serving? Are we going about our lives as humbled people who have been captured by this Jesus? Are we going about our lives having surrendered all of ourselves to all of King Jesus Paul then moves on to tell us, and we won't stop on this one for too long, but he tells us that his his ministry is made credible in Christ because this is where the attacks were coming, that this guy isn't someone who you should be listening to. So he goes on in chapter 3 to say, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul changes the imagery here, he adds in a, a new. Metaphor, another one that will mean familiar with the uh, culture of the time. And that was that they had a, a quirk in the culture that was because it was a very honor shame driven culture. And that is that it was very normal to highlight your good work as a means of kind of being on the front foot, being very proactive about your public reputation. Now I know in my particularly my, my working industry, you know, LinkedIn is, is not a not a big deal uh in in the ministry world, but I do have a, a LinkedIn profile. So every so often every couple of months I might get an email that, that prompts me to go check out LinkedIn. And so I see. You guys on LinkedIn. I see other people on LinkedIn and I I, I pick up the LinkedIn language, the the, the, the lingo that, that kind of sounds like a little bit like a mix between being in a job interview and giving an awards or acceptance speech at the Oscars, where everyone's super positive about everybody else and you have to kind of, you cloak your accomplishments like I'm, hey, super humbled to receive a promotion to be the assistant manager of the sixth division of this particular and then everybody else will get in the comments and say, hey, you deserve it so much and great credit to you. Really good corporate encouragement to speak. Well, they had a culture back then about it. And it was not like ours where we, we kind of, we catch it, don't we? We cloak it in humility. It's called the humble brag. They didn't have humble brags. They just had brags. And so what people did back in that day is when wealthy benefactors did something good, let's say they gave money. Uh, to a cause or something, you know, they wouldn't wait for the people they gave the money to to put their name on the building. They wouldn't wait for people to kind of write a, a thank you note back to them. No, they would build a monument to themselves to celebrate their glory and how good they have been in giving this and being a benefactor and being generous in that way. And now the church, of course, wasn't immune to that kind of culture, And so perhaps like today, we have a a celebrity pastor circuit in our own day. And back then, before they had the the conference promos and the the bios on the website and the endorsements from other uh, kind of like-minded ministers, these super apostles in the first century, well, they would bring letters. Letters to new churches to say, hey, that church back then thinks I'm kind of a big deal. And so you guys should also think that I'm kind of a big deal. There was what C.S. Lewis calls an inner ring. And all of us with our human hearts have that temptation. We want to be in the inner ring. It's all about who you know. Paul comes along. And what put them off a little bit was that Paul didn't play this game. Paul wasn't bringing letters of commendation about himself to them. What he says here in this text very plainly is that actually the fruit that you guys have experienced in your life changed. Proves to you that God is at work through me. Yeah. He sees his credibility not from coming what other people, not from coming yet, yeah, not from coming from what other people said about him, but from the fruit of the life change that the gospel that he's preached has wrought in these people. And so, whereas they were about who you know, Paul is all about: Do you actually see people grow? Do people actually change? The gospel that I'm about, the message that that I'm about is actually the one that leads people to be free from sin, that leads people to move on and up in the Lord, that leads people to maturity. And I'm sure there would have been individuals in this particular church who would have heard that and been struck like, actually, yeah, I've seen this person grow. I've seen this person come from death to life. I've seen this person kind of dabble in kind of dodgy ethics in the workplace and now grow up to be a person of principle and character because of Jesus. They would have had all these examples of all the ways that people will have changed because of the message that Paul told them. I was reading in my Uh, Our our Bible reading plan this week, if you're following on the the marathon edition, uh, you would have been in, in John chapter 15. And in John 15, Jesus is telling his disciples about what their relationship with him is going to look like when he's gone. And he says to them, you know, a branch can't bear fruit if it's detached from the vine. And in the same way, you can't bear fruit if you're not abiding in me. And then later on, he says, I've appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And so you put those two together, the big message is that The Christian life is about Jesus. That if we can't bear fruit apart from Jesus, but we're meant to bear fruit, the Christian life is about being close to Jesus, abiding in Jesus, not being in the club, not being in the know, not being in the inner ring, not being on the stage, not being someone necessarily that other people write letters about you. Now, they might might all be good things, but they can be dangerous things because we all have the temptation to be enamoured with what others are saying about us. We all have the temptation to be enamoured with with being near important people, having that relational proximity to others that we get clout by association. So we follow what's trending, we listen to who's trending, We tribalize even today in the church around particular personalities or preachers or worship leaders or church brands. And Paul comes along and he says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we're busy positioning ourselves around impressive people. We're busy growing our our networks and building our clout. Paul positions himself around Jesus. Paul gets his sufficiency for what he's here to do from God. He's built his self-esteem, his ministry credentials, his resume. It's all about being connected to Jesus. And so he's letting the the fruit of the life change that comes from him being around Jesus speak for itself. Jesus, again, is the issue. Jesus makes the difference. And he does this for our final point and his final argument. He does this because of the crux of it, the way that God is moving in the world right now, the way that people change, they are changed by Christ. Christ. And so Paul starts to go deep, and he goes deep because what he's doing is he's reflecting on, uh, or he's he's writing a commentary essentially in these couple of paragraphs from Exodus chapter 34. And so he essentially puts his head in the bonnet of the engine to point out exactly how the wiring works. In the car of New Testament Christianity, he does it by going back here to Exodus 34. We won't go there ourselves, but he goes there to compare the old covenant that came through Moses with the new covenant that we're under today. Now, just to explain a little bit about that concept of covenants, think about it with me. If I wanted to meet with someone really important, let's say I wanted to meet with Elon Musk. You know, I could right now probably pull out Twitter and I could tweet at Elon Musk. Hey, Elon, keen to meet. See you 2 p.m on Tuesday, City on Hill office in Mount Waverley, looking forward to it. Now you would call me crazy if at 1.55pm next Tuesday, I'm I'm putting water in the glass, I'm preparing the office and I'm sitting down to think, hey, any minute now, Elon's going to walk through the door and I'm going to get to meet Elon Musk. I'm going to get to have that meeting. Now for two people to meet, of course, the two people The two parties need to agree, the time and the place, let alone for someone who has some clout, let alone for someone who's kind of a big deal. Well, think with me about how big a deal God himself is. How do we relate to God? How can you and I as creatures, how can we meet with the living God? But when we're talking about meeting with God, he's the one who has to set the terms. He's the one who has to set the agenda. He has all the power. And so what we see in the Bible is that he makes covenants with his people. He makes promises to his people telling us how it's going to be. He tells us how we're going to be able to relate to him. And the story of the Bible is God revealing exactly that, how you and I can relate to him, how he's going to win us back into relationship with him. And so the whole story of the Bible really is, it pivots around a covenant. It starts in Genesis chapter twelve, the covenant of grace that he makes with Moses, where God tell, where he makes with Abraham, I should say, where God tells Abraham, here's how it's going to be. Through you, I'm going to make a family. Through that family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. They're going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. This is what I'm going to do. And we're told that Abraham simply believes God, and the faith, the belief, it's counted to him as righteousness. We saw last week that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That is that that promise to make a family is ratified, is confirmed. The crescendo of it is in Jesus' coming so that we all, Jew and Gentile alike, might be welcomed into the family by faith. Now that one meta Covenant applies today. You might have heard the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had, Father Abraham, I am one. We are part of the covenant of Abraham. If you are trusting in Jesus, believing God's promises as expressed in Jesus, you are in that covenant of Abraham. And yet under that big umbrella of the covenant of Abraham, there's, there's multiple other covenants. There's the promises that he made to David. But specifically here, he's talking about the Old Covenant, which is the covenant that he made with Moses. How people in the Old Testament of Israel with Moses, how would they relate to God? And so what he brings up here is this idea that there was this ministry of death in comparison to our ministry of life. Let's read what he says here about this old covenant and in comparison to the new. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so he compares the, the old covenant through Moses and this new covenant that's come through the Spirit in Christ. What he's talking about is when Moses used to get up the mountain and he went up there particularly to grab the, the, two, the Ten Commandments and, and, and come down. Because of God's people, their, their sinfulness, they'd already carved a golden calf to worship it in God's place. Whenever Moses would dwell with God and speak to him. As a man speaks to his friend, we're told. He'd come down to relay the message to the rest of Israel. And when he did, he would come with a shining face, that he'd been so close to God in God's glory that his face would shine to the people. And the reason that it would shine is essentially that it was a sign of their distance from God, their inability to come close like Moses to God that Moses could embody that glory in a sense, and yet they, through it, would be condemned by it. And so because they they couldn't look too long at that shining face because it would essentially kill them, such was their sinfulness before a holy God, Moses would put on a veil whenever he would talk to Israel so that they wouldn't have to keep looking at the shine. And so it meant that under the covenant of Moses... While he, Moses, would meet regularly with God, his people would just be reminded all the time of their separation from God. That yes, they perhaps believed by faith and yet on the daily, they couldn't relate to God. Yet through Moses, they were restricted. They didn't have access. They were reminded again and again of their falling short and of their distance. And yet in the new covenant brought by Jesus, that condemnation turns to righteousness as we saw in our bible reading memory verse in 2 Corinthians 5:21 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks just like them we're made right with god by faith and yet far different from them in jesus there is freedom it says this in verse 17 now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the new covenant upon all flesh, male and female, Jew and Gentile alike, rich and poor. Everybody who puts their trust in Jesus now, like Moses, can be with God face to face, like a person speaks to their friend. And that's all because the Holy Spirit helps us see and helps us behold Jesus, gives us unfettered access, reconciles us, but reconciles us in a way that we are now free, we are changed little by little, one degree at a time. And so what is at the heart of Christianity? What is the engine driving what we're doing here today? What you're going to go... Be as a Christian as you live your Christian life, it is beholding Jesus. Beholding Jesus. The ministry of, the, of death becomes the ministry of life in the spirit. In Jesus, the, the ministry of condemnation becomes the ministry of righteousness. In Jesus, He turns the fading glory of the old into the eternal glory of the new. So I hope you can see now what Paul is getting at as he lifts the hood into the engine of what's going on in the world, into why he leads and why he preaches and why he serves as he does and why we should be challenged in the same vein. Paul is trying everything he can to get the attention off of us. He wants to get the church's energy away from their own performance. Paul knows that the only difference to be made in the world is a difference made through Jesus. Jesus. Is the issue. Jesus is the one who makes a difference in our hearts, in our lives, in our our ethical world. Jesus transforms us. And so, what the church in Corinth needs, what we need, what you need, you don't need to come every Sunday and find more talking points about moral improvement. You don't need to come and, and, and be stirred up through partisan political speech. You don't need motivational. Speeches every Sunday to help you have better habits. You don't need celebrity personalities you can kind of hitch your reputation to and receive clout by association. You don't need watered down theology so that we can get more people in the room so that we can all agree with each other and the world. No, you need Christ. We need Christ. And Christ is all we need. And so I'm not here to make you impressed with me. I want you to be impressed with Christ. The way that we should live is not to make other people impressed with us, but to make them impressed with Christ through us. Your life exists for Jesus and the goal of your life, where your life is going. Every year, if you make goals, resolutions, there should always be one at the top to become more like Jesus. Your life exists for him and his life is where you're going to. And it's in beholding Jesus that we see that. Beholding Jesus is the way that we're transformed. How do we behold him if he's not here in the flesh? Well, we we hear about him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. We think on him. We meditate on Jesus. We worship Jesus. We dwell on Jesus. We take times out of our day, out of our busyness, out of our schedule to sit, commune with Jesus. We abide in Jesus. And this is what the church and the Christian life is all about, a life in Jesus, with Jesus, for Jesus. And so this is why we as a church, we go on a lot about Jesus. It's not here at Monash, but normally we have a lot of banners that say, No, Jesus, make Jesus known. This is why we sing about Jesus. This is why we pray to God through Jesus. This is why we build community so that you would feel the welcome of Jesus. We preach Jesus. We invite you to serve because Jesus wants us to become servants like him. We invite you to give because Jesus has given everything that he has to us. Why we do what we do is because beholding Jesus by the power of the Spirit is how God is at work in the world today. And so let us resolve together to be a people, to be a church that sees itself, like Paul, as as captured by Christ. Not puffing our chests out, not not strutting out into the world because we're Christians, victorious, humbled, servants, because we've been captured by Jesus. To see ourselves as actually made credible, that our, our reputation exists and is safe in Jesus. Because there's nothing impressive in us, apart from what Christ has grown in us. And to see ourselves as increasingly being changed by Christ. The only way to grow into the calling that God has for us is with God himself, is with Jesus himself. And so I realize I've talked at you for 30 minutes, and yet I don't want this to be just another a data point of content, of all the content that you're going to consume this week. So we're going to take a moment. To pause, because each one of us in this moment, because of the freedom that God gives us by the Spirit in Christ, we have the ability to commune with God right here, right now, in a lecture theatre, in Monash. So we're going to do that. So in a moment, I'm, to, I'm just going to we're just going to be silent, give you give you a moment to reflect, to pray in your hearts, and in the quiet of your hearts, process the realities that I've brought up out of this text between you. And God. This passage isn't just about how we do things at church to help us focus on Jesus. It's about how you do things in your life to help you surrender to Jesus. He is the one who brings change and he is the one who has made a way for us to freely come before him. So I want to let you respond how you need to. For some of you, that might be uh, a moment of repentance before God, repenting of pride, repenting of half-heartedness, repenting of, of putting stock in your own performance. It might be some of us have made people big in our life and God very small in our life, and we need to reverse that. It Might be that some of us need to bring parts of our life and God to, parts of our life to God that need to be freshly surrendered to Him for all of this, God invites us to look to Christ. God invites us to, to come to him, to experience freedom, ironically, by surrendering ourselves to him. And so I'm going to give you a moment of silence to pray in your own spirit right now. And then I'm going to lead us in prayer after a time. Gracious God, we thank you that you have won, that you have defeated sin and death in Jesus. You have defeated us and you have captured us for you. Lord, I pray that for all of us in this space today, you'd bring us to you in a way that we might recenter ourselves on you that you'd lead us in our lives to be so centered on Jesus that the gospel emanates out of our life that the aroma of Christ is spread through our words through our witness Lord forgive us for making you small in our lives for keeping ourselves big for making people bigger bigger Lord, as we come to you afresh, Lord, would you do what you tell us in this text that you can do? As we look to Jesus, Lord, you can transform us from one degree of glory to another. And so change us now. Lord, enlarge our hearts that we might be more wholehearted toward you. That Jesus might be more of the priority in our lives and in the life of our church. That your spirit, that your character, that your vision, that your priorities, that your mission, that your love for your world might come through in all we do, in all we think, in all we say. And so change us into the people we need to be to fulfill the vision that you have for your church and to fulfill the vision that you have for us as your sons and your daughters. Come Holy Spirit. And grant us the freedom to be made more like Jesus each and every day. Grant us the strength to behold Jesus in a world that's calling out for us to behold light and meaningless things. Make us deep and weighty people with the gravitas of the Holy Spirit upon us that we might be light and life in this world. For Jesus. It's in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.